the president called for a riot, and he got a riot. It's completely unacceptable. It's un-American. It's unpresidential. He absolutely needs to be held to account. It is the week of January 4th, and welcome to episode 59 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Lauren Dealey Mahler, NSI Visiting Fellow, President of Dealey Mahler Strategies, and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council. Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And returning guest, Michael Gottlieb, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Associate Counsel and Special Assistant to the President. Today, we want to do a deep dive on the foreign policy aspects of what happened at the Capitol building on January 6th. But first, let's discuss what we saw. We saw the President of the United States, the leader of the executive branch of our government, send his supporters to stop and disrupt the proceedings of the legislative branch because of a baseless conspiracy theory, a lie, that the President has been pushing. The subsequent event was nothing less than a riot, an insurrection, and perhaps even an attempted coup. It seems to me that if there is anything that merits the impeachment and removal from office of the president, it's what Trump did on the 6th. What do you all think? So I'll be honest, I'm still processing the, the magnitude of everything that happened yesterday, that the day turned from a political day where there were elections being called and things were happening and, and Congress was going to move through sort of a pro forma exercise to check the box and, and continue with our transition of power. And then all of a sudden, all hell seemed to break loose everywhere um, that it doesn't usually happen. And I think that there's a lot of legal implications and there's a lot of information to still be learned along the way. Um, I think without question, there was incitement. Um, I think that anybody who could speak to a crowd and address a crowd with the intention that the president did yesterday and using the words and the language and the full knowledge of it and then follow up after seeing what that mob did in response to his words, follow it up with additional inflammatory language and additional inflammatory statements and videos. Um, yeah, I think there need to be serious consequences. And I would have serious concerns about that person staying in office for the next 13, 14 days. The president called for a riot and he got a riot. It's completely unacceptable. It's un-American. It's unpresidential. He absolutely needs to be held to account. And frankly, Congress ought to do its job. Now, if Congress wants to impeach him, they should do that, right? What is not called for here, by the way, a lot of people talk about the 25th Amendment and disability. Let's be clear. The 25th Amendment does not apply here. And if it did apply here, it would be lawless in a coup. You don't want the president's cabinet removing because they don't like the way he's carrying out the, the powers of the office. They should remove because he's got some actual problem. He's mentally incompetent. He's physically incompetent. He's in the hospital, right? That's what the 25th Amendment was designed to deal with. And 
you might say, well, this is proof that President Trump is mentally incompetent. Who, what kind of president would call for riots in the streets? Look, President Trump has been doing this since before he got elected to office. The American people knew what they were getting when they elected him. He, he talked about John McCain as not being a war hero, right? He talked about, about good people in, in Charlottesville, right? He talked about how Vladimir Putin was, was to be believed or his own intelligence community and his own FBI and the like, right? Donald Trump has done this over and over and over again. This is nothing new. So it's, it's not disability, right? And none of us, the rest of the camp didn't think that for the last four years, right? So it's not disability. If Congress wants to remove him and they're so upset, as they seem to be, and they rightly should be, impeachment is a tool. Lauren is right. They can move fast. If they want to do it, they should. But that's what's on the table. Yes, he should be impeached and removed. It's an abusive office. It is a violation of one of the foundational norms of our democracy. Uh, it doesn't matter whether there's 13 days left or 13 hours left, uh, that the violation of uh, that norm of a peaceful transfer of power and not just the disrespect of the norm, but the open um, uh, conspiring. I mean, it is a seditious conspiracy that he has essentially incited his mob uh, to commit. And four people are now dead. And by the way, there were Molotov cocktails and bombs and other things. You know, we, we were steps away from this being way, way worse and more damaging than it was, which is which is shocking. Um, you know, as to what um, my good textualist friend Jamil is saying about the 25th Amendment, the word disability doesn't appear in the 25th Amendment. The words that appear are unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. And I do think, although I agree that um, I just think it, atmospherically and what it would mean for the system to have the cabinet do this at this point would be uh, potentially disastrous given the mentality of the mob. And so therefore impeachment would be the better option. I do think there's a, a strong and good faith argument to be made that one of the most fundamental duties of his office right now is to uh, allow for the peaceful transition of power. And he is unable to discharge that duty. It's not that he's unwilling, he is unable to discharge that duty because of whatever it is, mental disability, his inability to determine truth from fiction. But there's a good faith argument to be made for. But all of that said, it's a silly argument to have because it's not going to happen. And and I think we could all agree that impeachment is the better remedy and it's the one that Congress should choose. Let me let me let me just let me just jump in and, and offer one thought on this 25th Amendment versus impeachment. The attack was on the legislative branch. The impeachment option is the legislative branch remedy to misbehavior in the executive branch. It seems to me that the that the obvious way to handle this is for Congress to defend itself from these outrageous attacks. And by the way, this includes the vice president, who, of course, is also the president of the Senate. He was being hunted by rioters in the Capitol. They were looking for Mike Pence. No one's been more loyal to Trump than Vice President Mike Pence, they were looking for him. They were trying to stop him from certifying uh, what was going on with the Electoral College. Yeah, no, I I was going to jump to that. And I think the the point that Jamil made as well and that, that Mike followed up is there's a key distinction here between the unable and the unwilling, or it's not that you're not capable of doing the right thing. It's that whatever you're choosing to do, I disagree with. And in this case, 
I disagreeing is a significantly growing portion of the country um, who sees this. And I may disagree with your actions, but you are making them as a competent individual. You're making them as a terrible individual, but you're a competent, terrible individual. And I agree that that takes us out of 25th Amendment territory, which is already increasingly unlikely, agreed, um, and puts us into, okay, so what do we do with terrible people breaking the law intentionally? That puts us into impeachment territory. And I think the, the cherry on top, rather than the driving motivation, motivating factor is what you said, Les, of the Congress can defend itself. They have this option. Not only is it the, the right option to go with in this case, um, if you think this needs to be done now, but yes, it, there's some there's some sweet sort of vengeance to it that is well deserved. Okay, let's talk about uh, what uh, we've heard from some of our allies in the hours uh, since this attack happened. Boris Johnson, of course, Prime Minister of Great Britain, called it disgraceful. Uh, the Secretary General of NATO called it shocking. The German foreign minister brought up what the Nazis did to the Reichstag back in the 1930s, burning it down. Uh, how is this going to impact our relations with our allies around the world? How, how seriously are they going to be able to take the United States from this point forward? Well, I mean, it makes us a laughingstock. I mean, you know, for all the tin pot dictatorships in the world that have this kind of thing happen, that we've always gone in and helped with their democracy promotion and brought them back to, you know, from the brink of, of you know, of, 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 of anarchy, right? Now we just look like all those clowns. We're, we are the clowns. We're the laughingstock of the world. We look like a joke. And it's because of a bunch of idiots who don't understand what America stands for in American democracy and cover themselves in the flag when they clearly don't understand what the flag means. And they don't, have a, they don't have any respect for the flag. If these people had respect for the flag, they would have done what Americans do, which is protest, vote, do their jobs, hold their members of Congress to account in elections, not by storming the Capitol and, and parading around chairs. By the way, it's also worth noting that all those people, there were, there were a handful, a dozen, 50-some-odd arrests in the Capitol. There were thousands of people. Why are all those people under arrest right now? What are the Capitol Police doing? What is the DCP doing? What are all those people that were out there, all those, all those officers that were out there? First of all, why weren't they protecting the Capitol in the first instance? And second of all, why didn't they make a ton more arrests? There were people fighting with billy clubs in the aisles of Congress, in the halls of Congress, against member, officers of the law. And then they were just, the door was open, they walked right out. It's ridiculous. I think, so Les, your question is about allies I, and I know we're going to or I assume we're going to get to adversaries but um, yeah. on allies I think it, it is a it is an, another data point and you know a, a disturbing trend that has been observed about our our democracy which is this the power of the spread of disinformation and the effects that that has on our ability to um, solve difficult problems, to have a functioning democracy, to have our constitution operate in the way uh, that it always has, and to be a, a beacon for you know, democratic rule of law principles throughout the world. And those images um, uh, are, are going to be impossible to, um, to remove, uh, not just from the history books and from the internet, but from people's memories for everybody whose eyes were glued to the TV. And I do think that's going to have an effect 
with allies, it's not as though it's going to end our relationships or fundamentally change, you know, NATO or anything like that. But it, it, it is going to have an effect on our reputation and our esteem and the weight that our um, that our word carries in, in places that I think is going to be difficult to perceive. And, and, it's, and it's as Jamil, as you hear in the sort of rage coming from Jamil's voice, which I which I empathize with, it's humiliating, right? It's just it's humiliating to have um, our democracy debased in that manner for the, you know, just on display for the entire world to see and, and, and to have it, um, to have it done by uh, people just disgracing uh, the halls of Congress in the manner that they were, it's, it's going to be a very difficult thing to overcome. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that we have made things very difficult in the last few years for our Foreign Service, for our diplomats, for those official representatives of the United States in other countries to maintain relationships with our allies and to grow and strengthen the relationships that we've always relied on. We've talked about that a hundred times on this podcast. And I think what happened yesterday will impact in different ways in different times. There's no, you know, we can say, yeah, it ruins our reputation. Yeah, it's embarrassing. We know all of that. But I think when it comes down to the people on the ground who are going to deal with this and whose lives are going to be made harder and whose jobs are going to be made harder day to day, it's going to depend on the conversation, the moment, whoever they're talking to, what that person wants. If it is a country where it benefits them to point it out and embarrass them along the way in some type of a negotiation or, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Um, I think that's going to come up. That's going to be pretty regular. You know, I think some of our closer allies will understand the distinction between all of America and the group that did this. Um, and I think that, yeah, there's, there's going to be some embarrassment. There's going to be some shame that goes with allowing this to happen. And we can talk about that, uh, that law enforcement response and how inadequate it was before, during, and after. Um, Jamil raised that point. I think it's incredibly valid. Um, but I think overall, we are just making the job harder. Um, you know, the incoming administration already had their work cut out for them to work on restoring that reputation and rebuilding those relationships. And sure as hell didn't need this on their doorstep just as they walk in. You know, I've got I've got a pretty high filter for uh, political talking points and boilerplate and the, and the kind of things that politicians like to put in press releases. And so when I would see the Biden campaign and now president-elect Biden put write down things like restore American standing in the world, I kind of dismissed it, uh, instinctively because it's, it's boilerplatey. And I figured, you know, there's a difference in policy between Trump and Biden and, and he'll say his policies are restoring American leadership. And what Trump was doing was, was not leadership. You know, that's all that, that's the way I saw it. I saw it as partisan. I don't see it that way anymore. Uh, that is going to be Joe Biden's job. He's going to have to restore us standing in the world. How are we going to lead the free countries of this planet? If, this kind of thing is going on in in our capital city. If one branch of government launches a war on the other branch of government because it doesn't like the the processes that are happening, we can't go persuade our allies to make tough decisions if we have we have this weakness of our own. We can't rise to the challenge uh, that China poses to us with its corrupt, dictatorial, human rights abusing approach to the world if 
if we can't get our own house in order. It just it makes it so much more difficult. And now the Biden administration will have to do that. They will have to actively take steps to restore American standing in the world just to get anything done. It's not good enough just to show up and say we're different than the other guys. Now they're going to have to actually demonstrate that they can get along with Congress. They can get along with Republicans. They can keep Democrats together. They can get some bipartisan things done in addition to partisan things done. It, it does. It just makes it so much more difficult. So that's, that's uh, how I've evolved in the last 24 hours. Um, let's, let's talk about <clears throat> how this will impact our, our, the United States promotion of democracy and human rights. Uh, my, one of, one of the little things I've noticed uh, today is that the president of Zimbabwe, Emerson Monagagwa, who is a who's the kind of person who likes to jail his opponents. He likes to jail journalists who write anything critical of him. He uh, lets his security forces use deadly force against groups he doesn't like, ethnic groups or what have you. He's, uh, he's as bad a leader in the world as, as you're going to find. He's worse than his predecessor, uh, Robert Mugabe. He was so bad, in fact, that the Trump administration sanctioned him. The uh, Trump administration, not known for promoting human rights and democracy, actually imposed sanctions on him. Monongagwa was able to say today, pl- somewhat plausibly, hey, who are they to sanction me when this is going on in Washington? How dare they impose sanctions on me? This is outrageous. They need to end them. They're making the Zimbabwean people suffer. And I don't, I don't think that's going to change our policy. But boy, it's, a, it's, a tough, it's tough to imagine the U.S. taking a, a legitimate hit from a guy like Emerson Monongagwa. What do you all, how do you all see this as impacting our ability to promote our values? Um, it's going to hurt. I mean, um, you, we've seen statements out of Iran, China already in the last 24 hours that this youth, China's Communist Youth League apparently was doing a play on something Speaker Pelosi said about the Hong Kong protests and described the protests yesterday as a, quote, beautiful sight. Um, you know, the, uh, the Beijing's foreign ministry was putting out statements mocking the fact that our, our media reaction was so disparate, I assume, in references to the way it was being covered on Fox vis-a-vis um, some of the other networks. Um, so and it is going to um, our, this is sort of what I was foreshadowing the reference to adversaries earlier. I mean, we, this is going to be used by our adversaries as a a club against us whenever we uh, want to try to use U.S. soft power or elements of U.S. hard power to engage in democracy promotion, Um, you know, whether it's opposing military aggression or opposing political repression, uh, you know, promoting um, free speech rights, whatever it might be, this is just going to be used as a club against us. And it's not the first it's sort of not the, the first issue that, that that will have been available to be used against us, but it's just so it's such a powerful image that that will be able to be used against us. And I, I do think it's not this isn't done yet. Part of what makes it um, all of this so stressful is that um, what's going to happen over the coming weeks and months and how the Biden administration handles this incoming and how the Justice Department handles this uh, uh, is going to determine, I think, how large of an impact it has on us over the long run, but there's certainly the potential for it to have a huge impact. I think one of the big, the big pieces and the big determining factors in how significant of an impact this has going forward um, 
on our relationships with not just our adversaries, but everyone that we interact with outside of our own house. You know, you, your family can be as crazy as you want. And the minute you walk outside, okay, it's my family. Someone, someone's going to be embarrassing somebody. But what it comes down to, the part that maintains the reputation and, you know, I, I spend most of my time working in the reputation space. That's what I do. When something goes wrong, it's not, it's, it's a percentage of what went wrong, but it's more than that. It's how you handle it. It's what you do afterwards. It's how you clean it up. It's how you fix it. It's how you react. And in this case, we are still in the very, very, very early, early stages of reacting as a country and reacting as a government. The Biden administration hasn't even had a chance to react because there is no Biden administration yet. That That's not for two more weeks. So I think that there will be, we have handicapped ourselves on the world stage, but I think that the real impact is going to come in how they see us act now. Will there be accountability? You know, when we go to these other places and they say, yeah, how can you tell us to build a democracy? Look what you did. Will we be in a position at some point eventually where we can say, yeah, that shit happened. But this is how you handle it when you're a democracy. This is how you handle it when you are a strong country. Things go wrong and you handle it. Or will we point at what we have done in response to this and say, yeah, that was a thing, but, you know, based on how we handle it, now it's kind of squishy. We're not on real solid ground. Like, no, we can still maintain a, the moral ground that we stand on based on how we handle this now. And that's a lot of pressure on a lot of people who don't necessarily have the authority to take action. And the people who do have the authority to take action, obviously, we don't believe we can rely on. So the next, not just two weeks, but two months, six months are going to matter. What is Congress going to do? Will there be accountability for this? Or will the 50 some odd people randomly arrested yesterday get out? Will the other hundreds and thousands who are with them just get to walk free and keep posting on Instagram about, you know, the cool trophies they took when they ransacked the Senate offices? I mean, that's the part to me that is really important now, the accountability. There has to be accountability and it has to be hard and it has to be fast. There need to be heads that roll now. And I am concerned that we will not see that. I hope that we will. I'm concerned that we won't. And I think that either or, that is the question that will impact us the most in the long term. A couple of days ago, uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party went into Hong Kong and arrested 50 democracy activists. Uh, they did it on the day uh, Georgia, the state U.S. state of Georgia, was voting on to uh, run off Senate seats. Uh, the timing at first seemed pretty good. Uh, in retrospect, today it seems um, fantastic because uh, China can not only uh, uh, watch journalists get diverted by what's happening in the U.S., they can say, well, what we did is not as bad as what's happening in Washington. So there, there's an immediate impact of our ability to promote democracy and human rights in a critical place like Hong Kong against our uh, only real near peditor, near peer competitor in the People's Republic of China, it's it's already impacting what we can do in the world. Jamil, wh where does, uh, 
how do you how do you think other adversaries, Moscow, Tehran, Havana, Pyongyang, are going to react to what they saw this week in Washington? I mean, look, as has been happening for the last four years, and frankly, for you know the last four and a half, five years, um, there are vodka glasses being clinked in Moscow right now because this entire episode. The way that Donald Trump has carried himself in office nearly every day, and in particular, what his actions caused to happen at the Capitol and then the actions of those Americans, uh, has literally created the best scenario that Moscow could have ever hoped for. Americans attacking one another. American citizens attacking the rule of law institutions, our our very legislative branch of Congress, right, over over a completely made-up conspiracy theory about election fraud. A hundred members of Congress, after the the legislature was attacked by a mob, voting in favor of an idiotic conspiracy theory. Literally, this is exact. If you were running a covert influence operation, this is this is like this doesn't even, this this is not in the Super Bowl of covert influence. This is like you know it's beyond. It, it is it is the the nobody could even imagine this kind of success. And that's just Russia. I promise you the exact same thing. I don't know what they drink in China, but whatever it is, right, they're drinking it now, right? And and the same is true in Havana. The same is true in Pyongyang, right? Every U.S. adversary is having a field day. They are celebrating, right? And they may not have caused this. In fact, this is this is what we caused ourselves. They may have they may have increased the temperature. They may have turned it up a notch. They may have been involved in social media. We may find out later that they were there were bots retweeting stuff. But honestly, this is a problem of our own making, and we need to look at ourselves. And every single one of those protesters, protesters in quotes, needs to look at themselves and realize what they did yesterday did not benefit America. It did not make America great. It made Russia great. It made China great. It made Cuba great. It made Iran great. It made North Korea great. So if that's what they want to do, success. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I agree uh, with almost everything Jamil just said. Uh, <laughs> I can never say I agree with everything Jamil just said. Otherwise, we that would be bad. Yeah, that'd be very bad for his ego. Um, I think that what is terrifying about what happened yesterday is that it it shows our adversaries that had already invested considerably in fomenting internal divisions in our countries, which, you know, Russia's obviously um, poster child for that, but there are others, the power that disinformation can have because of the issues that we have in our media ecosystem, because of polarization, because of problems that we have with civic education all of the things that you could we could talk about for hours about it, but now that there is a playbook, now that there is a, a vivid demonstration of what that can accomplish, if if all you have to do is to increase that temperature that Jamil was referencing on issues that sort of sit at the center of our political cleavages and divisions, um, that is a playbook for this to happen again and again, and it doesn't have to happen at the Capitol. I mean this. There was nearly a takeover. There was a takeover of the Michigan state legislature. It got far less press attention than yesterday got. But this kind of thing can happen in every state. It can happen at the local level. And our adversaries now have a playbook for how uh, to engage in 
this new form of warfare against us and to, and to continue tormenting us because we can't seem to come up with solutions to the problem of uh, disinformation and conspiracy theories that completely divide us and cause people to do things that are just insane. I mean, just insane. It, it does uh, make you wonder if these things are, are successful in part because of the unique persona of Donald Trump, that he is in many ways the perfect vessel for this kind of um, attack on the United States. And that if he were off the board, then it would be much more difficult for our adversaries to e exploit weaknesses in our political system. And so, so that kind of gets you back to the 25th Amendment versus impeachment question. If the president is impeached and removed, he can't come back and run for office again. He can't be an office holder later. So you, you take him off the board under the 25th Amendment. I'm not sure that's true. So another another vote for impeachment. Uh, Lauren, let's let's explore this this other issue of that we were discussing earlier before we started recording about uh, whether domestic terrorism and and, I, and that seems like an apt term for what we we saw in the Capitol building this week is domestic terrorism also a national security issue? What is what is your view? Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, in my view, national security encompasses national defense, homeland security, and foreign affairs, foreign policy. It, those those building blocks and all of their, their loose definitions here and there and the, the buckets that they address come together to the overarching umbrella concept of what secures our nation, what keeps us secure, not just at the edge, not just away from the edge on the outside, but inside internally as well. It's not law enforcement. It's not, you know, police on the streets. It is the national role that the federal government plays in, again, in the sort of the, the looser definitions that go in there, but plays in securing our country, in, in providing for national security. And I think when you have mobs of violent protesters turned violent, whether they were protesters who turned violent or they got there, however they got there, whatever term you want to use for them. In my book, they meet the definition of domestic terrorism. And you have them physically taking over a seat of power, a government seat of power. They didn't, they didn't pick a, a random government building in Bethesda. They, you know, they came to the United States, they came to the gosh darn U.S. Capitol and violently forced their way inside hunting elected officials. That to me impacts the security of our nation with all the implications that come with it that we've been talking about. There's no question. This isn't just a should the police have done better enforcement? No, that's a piece of it, but it's not the whole thing. Jamil, counterpoint. I don't think I have a counterpoint. You were supposed to argue with Lauren on this topic. It's hard when I'm right. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I think that um, it is, it is, there are obvious national security implications here, right? I mean, there's, there's no question. You cannot uh, incite a mob to attack the Congress of the United States and there not be national security implications. 
is that true of every domestic terrorism event? Um, you know, probably not. Did this one have national security implications? Of course it did. Grant, what questions are we neglecting to ask and answer? What can we learn from other countries who have had to rebuild a moral center after a national security crisis like this one? If you look at places like South Africa, right, after apartheid, right, you had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, uh, in Rwanda, you had sort of similar uh, sort of bodies, uh, less, less, I think, knows this area better than I do. Um, I don't know that that, first of all, it's, it's, it's astounding that we're even having a conversation about that kind of thing being necessary in the United States of America. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, other than post-Civil War. Um, but yet here we are having this conversation. Um, uh, I, I, I can't imagine us actually doing something like that, but that is one model out there for bringing together communities that were, uh, horribly destroyed. I, I, I don't know. I don't have a good sense. Actually, I'd be interested if other people know what happened, uh, in World War II in Germany after, uh, after after the, the Nazis were removed from power uh, by us and by our allies. Um, I don't have a good sense of that um, and how they created national reconciliation. Um, but, you know, I mean, we need something. I mean, the fact, the fact that, you know, 72, 73 million people voted for Donald Trump, 92% of the Republican Party, which I'm a part of, um, voted for Donald Trump after seeing him in office for four years. Um, um, and then thousands of people watch this happen, and 100 members of Congress still voted uh, uh, on on this thing. It, 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 there's something wrong in this country that goes deeper than just politics, um, and and we need to figure out how to resolve that. And I don't know what the international, whether there is a national model for doing that that we that would sensibly apply to us. But those are at least some that I can I can think of. Yeah, you know, I think the most disturbing poll uh, that that I saw on this was that uh, overnight was that something like 45% of Republicans who witnessed the events thought that they were justified. And, and, you know, I mean, I will, it, time will tell whether polling actually holds up and you see similar numbers like that. But I mean, the problem with examples like post-war Germany is that they didn't have a first amendment. They essentially just banned Nazism from, Germany as a as a political party as a political ideology they banned the speech um, and you know that's just the type of measures that they had to take in Germany in order to move beyond um, the threat that Nazism as an ideology presented to the country will just never be available in our constitutional system and for good reason um, you know I mean people did talk about in the aftermath of um, torture and the detention rendition programs in the Bush administration, there was all this talk about truth and reconciliation commissions, uh, as Jamil knows. Um, I fear that what these events have done is they've left the incoming Biden administration with this massive, I mean, there was already going to be uh, huge issues for them to deal with, uh, with respect to the sort of cleaning up the mess created by this administration. But I think they now have a sort of question about do they have to take on some type of a truth and reconciliation commission, a truth commission or some some kind of task force. Um, and I would sort of suggest, you know, I mean, the Justice Department is going to have thousands of prosecutions that it's going to have to deal with coming out of this. I, I would suggest that 
Congress has got to step up and be a huge part of the solution here. This cannot be a job that is hung on the Justice Department and the executive branch. This, is, this, this was an attack on Congress. Congress has to be a part of the solution. There is, I think there are examples that, um, that can be offered from foreign countries in responding to disasters and national security crises. And, and typically they involve um, participation from, you know, uh, well-respected leadership from different parts of the political system and different branches of the government. And that's what's called for here. I'm not sure it can solve our post-truth problem. I'm not sure anyone has a solution to that, but a response to this has got to be something that Congress is involved in, that both parties are involved in, uh, that current leadership and past leadership uh, is involved in. And that's, that's our best shot. You know, I'm, I'm going to differ a little bit and say that this is really the responsibility of the Republican Party to purge itself of these uh, actors who may have supported what happened yesterday in the Capitol. Uh, years ago, William F. Buckley, when he was um, helping start the modern conservative movement in this country, went out of his way to, to purge the John Birch Society, which was a conspiracy-loving, um, hateful group from his movement. That has to have something like that has to happen again. Maybe it's a little bit more like what happened in the UK with the Labour Party uh, purging um, uh, the anti-Semites uh, from their party recently. You know, but there there has there's a responsibility to the for the party itself to police itself and get rid of the the bad eggs. I think so. While it may be appropriate to look at models like South Africa and other things truth and reconciliation, a broader, broader thing. I think at, at least initially the Republican party, if it wants to survive, has to, has to look inside in a public way and, and get rid of the people who are bad actors. Warren. I think all, I, I think you've gotten the closest to how I view this and what I view as something that needs to happen next. And I think the ideas of looking to other models at other countries and what they've done and how they've gotten there. There is nothing that is going to be, ah, there's the solution in a box on a shelf. Let me pull it down and put it in here. This isn't going to be something that works that way. Our country doesn't work that way. This situation isn't like one that we have faced before. The environment that we are operating in now, political, social, cultural, etc., is different than it has ever been in any other point in time. And that it has been tumultuous before, but the specifics that we are dealing with now are new. The fact that, as Jamil said, what happened yesterday went down and then a hundred members of Congress in the House of Representatives, elected officials in the U.S. government still voted on the bullshit conspiracy move that they supported. They didn't change their mind. That to me signifies the deeper challenge that goes beyond. We need to have some accountability for both the actions of yesterday and the, you know, crazy corruption mess that's gone on the last four years that we got, we were already talking about trying to find some way to clean that up. Now we have to clean up the specifics of yesterday but when you realize that this goes so much deeper, when you realize that an entire political party has been compromised by 
a cult of personality rather than an obligation to country. It doesn't matter if Donald Trump's not in office because that that cult fetish is still there. That belief is still there. It has been so ingrained and so absorbed for so long that it's not something that goes away because someone else sits at the desk. It, you know, the, the party that loses the White House never just disappears. They're still there. And in this case, it is a very different form of disagreement and minority party status. So the rules and the norms that we've been operating under for these types of situations in the past don't apply. We've been breaking norms left and right for the last four years. This is just the latest and it's maybe the most significant. So I think what we do now, as we said before, matters more than almost anything. How we handle this now, and there has to be actual real accountability. We can't just sit around and talk about our feelings for a year. We can't just have a bunch of commissions where we all sit around and hear people over and over and over, you know, provide witness to what we know. There needs to be accountability um, and it has to be real and it has to be tangible. Yeah, Les, I mean, I think um, it would be great if the Republican Party could purge itself of these elements, but it's it's not going to. Um, and I think that the tragedy is that, you know, this this conversation that took place into the wee hours last night, you saw, you know, the argument that was the, the argument between the sort of Mitt Romney side and the Ted Cruz Hawley side. And, you know, the 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 Romney side is, of course, the Romney side is is right. Of course, it is objectively correct that your job as a senator or representative is to lead and to tell the truth and to not foment conspiracy theories. But there is a reason that so many have decided uh, to play into these conspiracy theories. It is it's powerful. Uh, it taps into money. It taps into networks. Um, there's a reason that they do it, and so I. Um, I, I hope that the um, I hope that calmer heads can prevail, and I hope uh, that this will be a teachable moment and a lesson that you know you don't lean into uh, uh, conspiracy theories like this, and that your job is to tell the truth and to engage with the facts. But I, I'm skeptical. My concern is that the lesson that's going to be learned isn't the right one. It's not a lesson of this is bad; we should purge it. It's going to be a lesson of here's how we do it smarter next time. Here's how we don't make it about this one person who's, you know, been a charlatan from the beginning. Here's how we put someone smarter and brighter and a little bit shinier and who uses better words, doesn't tweet as often. Here's how we put that person in charge of it and we still do the same thing. Here's how we get well, it right. I'm, I'm, will, I'm willing to let the Senate wing of the Republican Party fight it out with the House wing to see who wins. Uh, and, and I'll be rooting for the... For the Senate guys. All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing. Uh, join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. <laughs> <laughs>